Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. Our justice minister says he wants to increase the number of people we detain pre-trial to keep our streets safe. But is it really that simple? I speak with someone who says he doesn't think it makes the streets any safer and what led to the death of his brother while he was being detained. And what would you do if someone was wielding a hunting knife at you? Well, we have someone who's going to join us tonight and talk about what she did and she used her instincts as an ex-RCMP officer. We're going to talk with her and find out how she defused the situation and why it highlights exactly what we need more mental health supports across the country for. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. If you are a person who rides the subway, and uh, in particular, we're talking about uh, the subway in Ontario, in Toronto. It's called the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission. If you've been riding the transit uh, here or really anywhere across the country and found that lately... Maybe you just don't feel as safe as you used to, right? Maybe it's just not as safe an environment for you like it used to be. And um, I'd like to hear from you. So 877-399-9898. Crime is up. Readership is down. But let's talk about how a U.S. city uh, changed their public transit approach to crime-related incidents on their system. I'm talking about the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, known as SEPTA. And there's a project there called Scope, which was launched in 2021 to help Philadelphia cope with a post-pandemic surge in homelessness, drug use, and crime on their system. And I got to tell you, when I was a kid, my father had businesses in New York, and we used to go to New York as kids, uh, not all the time, but, you know, fairly often. And, you know, my mom would say, you know, don't take the subway, it's not safe. And for years, you know, people would talk about the subway system in New York City and other places in the United States as just not being a safe uh, thing to do, especially if, you know, you're coming from, at that point, coming from Toronto, safe place, you know, kind of calm, much more conservative, much more laid back. Uh, But now people are saying that about Toronto. They're talking about the TTC in Toronto, the Toronto Transit Commission. It's just not a safe place to travel these days, not a system that anybody feels really comfortable uh, using. But other cities are struggling with the same thing, right? And Philadelphia's system is being held up as an example for introducing an innovative plan that seems to stem the, um, the real harmful stuff. They have a pretty good approach, a more humane way to handle its problems, whether it works I'm not really sure. We haven't really seen a lot of evidence, but certainly, according to Philadelphia, they say that it's the stats are looking pretty good. Maybe it's a solution that might be good for Canada, maybe good for Toronto, for its uh, its uh, subway system and for transit systems across the country uh, that are experiencing difficulties. Right? There's maybe this is something that'll be helpful uh, for them. But um, you got to understand the scenario. It's really not about subway transit. It's about the subway system being used as a kind of combination homeless shelter, safe injection site, uh, meeting place, you know, just it's it when you get underground, simple the simple logic says that things are going to happen when you're out of sight, out of mind kind of thing, right? So in uh, SEPTA, which is the system we're talking about in the U.S., it's the fifth largest transit system in the United States with 900,000 uh, rides a day pre-COVID or roughly half the size of the TTC. So um, TTC is bigger, 
Toronto Transit Commission system is bigger. Since the pandemic, the ridership across uh, that system uh, in the U.S. and uh, Philadelphia has been a fraction of what it used to be. There were five murders on the system in 2020 compared to one in 2019. In October 2021, a woman was allegedly raped on a train in front of a whole bunch of passengers, if you can believe it. Last year, aggravated assaults on their system went up 141 from four years before. But ridership in their system is also down by 40%. So it's a problem in Toronto. We see the same thing here in Toronto and roughly across North America, I would say the same thing, right? Crime on transit has spiked. Many cities, stations, trains, and buses have become basically, as I said, like de facto homeless shelters. TTC has seen a huge surge in violent crimes in recent months, stabbings, swarmings, robberies, assaults. Last year, violent uh, offenses against passengers rose close to 46% in one year. The attacks left many TTC leaders, the leaders of the transit system here in Toronto, already struggling with low ridership since the pandemic, searching for some kind of answer. How are they going to deal with this? What's the solution? What's, what's going to make sense? Anyway, some cities have responded uh, to the surge in violence by ramping up policing. Philadelphia's approach has been praised by the American Public Transit Association, among others, for its dual focus on societal issues and safety. So here's here's where this all kind of meets together. The system, the, the issues that we have in society with uh, homelessness, uh, drug abuse, uh, uh, mental health issues, and so on, um, it's exasperated uh, when you start to see it spill over into the subway system. And the reason it spills over into the subway system is because that's an easy place to go and sort of catch a few weeks. You know, if you get on the subway on one end and ride to the other, you know, you can get close to an hour's sleep, maybe 48 minutes from one side to the other, from a length to the other, almost an hour's worth of sleep before anybody really is looking for you. And frankly, they don't really walk up and down the, the trains every day, like, you know, every, every time it gets to one end or another. So if you're hanging out there, no one's really looking, right, to be honest with you. But I'll tell you what they did in Philadelphia. They added more mental health support type people. Yeah, really good. It's a really good, I, I think, a really good idea. So what they did is they started dealing with um, the cause of the situation much more so than the actual uh, activity on the train. So by introducing more uh, social uh, support type folks, uh, what they did is they've um, – uh, try to make it a little easier. So the system in Philadelphia, that neighborhood, there's a, a neighborhood called Kensington. Uh, and it's one was known as the Walmart of heroin uh, because of its open air drug markets. And roughly about 60% of its residents live in poverty and homelessness. Uh, so it's quite common in that area. So, you know, the subway system riding into that area was, it was obvious that um, be a lot of people uh, in that sector that would be uh, in need of this kind of, of, of support. So they go underground, right? And when they get underground, not a lot of people are looking at them. So what they did in Philadelphia and what I think they should be doing, if they're not already, I think they're on their way here in Toronto, but um, they, have a, they have people that patrol the system and they do things like, you know, uh, get people to treatment centers, um, hand out food. Uh, they they uh, distribute some clothing, uh, warm clothing in the winter. Uh, they, you know, help people get to uh, safe injection sites, get to hospitals if needed. Um, they report, you know, to 911 and so on. Last year, uh, between April and December of 2022, outreach teams in Philadelphia helped more than 20,000 people off the system, and they only called the police 450 times. 
but they're not a social service agency, right? That's not their job. Their job is they're not a social service agency, but you got to kind of step in if people are kind of are in your space and, and to avoid losing ridership, because now what does this mean in real dollars? It means if you're losing ridership, you're losing dollars and that's going to impact the people that do use the system. Listen, my son, he's almost 30 years old, takes the sub was takes a subway to and from work. Um, you know, he's a working, working man. He's doesn't have a whole lot of disposable income. So my, my wife and I decided that we're going to provide him with a, a, a taxi uh, account uh, in a downtown taxi system here in Toronto. So he can take the cab more often in the evenings and at night, not because I'm worried about him, but it helps me sleep at night, frankly. I think he's very capable of being careful, but you never know. I'd prefer him not to be on the subway system at that hour of the night. So I think by increasing the the ability for people to be on the on the subway systems, uh, going up and down the trains more often, doing what needs to be done, helping people that are in crisis, perhaps get out of crisis, um, learning, you know, if Toronto can learn more from what they're doing in Philadelphia, keep track of it, uh, maybe do their own kind of pilot scope project that's probably a really good idea because having them hauled off by police and, and by the way, Toronto, they just called off the number of police that were on the system. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. It's a hard thing to deal with, but we're not sure. And what happens with some of those people? Some of them go to jail, but some of the people that are in jail right now don't necessarily need to be there. It's not necessarily making Canada safer. You know, in Canada, there are more people le- that are legally innocent awaiting trial in jail, frankly, than those that are actually, you know, detained for against convictions with, you know, convictions. Um, and the problem is that our justice minister here in Canada, David Lamenti, uh, Lamenti, excuse me, recently announced that the government will take steps that will result in more Canadians being detained by the courts prior to their trial. He said it's meant to make Canadians safer. But the illusion of safety is not tantamount to actual safety. And in this case, creating the illusion would not really be that effective because it's detrimental to society in the long term. And by the way, comes at a cost of $120,000 per inmate per year. So when someone's waiting on trial and can't get bail, meaning they have opportunities if someone posts some money or sign for them that they can get out, um, if you can't post bail, and you're, you'd be stuck in, you could be stuck in jail for seven, eight months, 10 months before trial. I used to visit uh, back before the pandemic. I used to do jail visits at a place in Ontario, in Toronto here in Ontario called uh, Maplehurst. And a lot of the people I visited had, uh, were there uh, waiting trial for domestic assault, uh, you know, husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. They were together. Both were high, both were drunk. Something happened. Someone pushed somebody, someone threw somebody, somebody threw somebody at something or something at somebody, you know. And they were then given, uh, they were let out from, you know, let out on their own, a pending trial. And then the part of the letting some, part of releasing somebody like that is there's a, um, uh, a peace a peace bond, so to speak, that says you can't go near the person that uh, you're allegedly to have been involved with in the altercation. Um, and when you breach that, when you breach that um, that uh, probationary or that, uh, not probationary period, but when you breach that um, bail condition, if you will, you end up in jail. So I used to visit all kinds of folks that were in jail pending uh, trial, breaching a bail can, you know, a bail uh, uh, issue because you know if someone's with a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, they're, they're they've been together a long time, and now they can't see each other. Um, you know, 
obviously you're not at your best, I suppose, if you find yourself in situations like that. And um, they end up breaching and the breach leads to staying in, in jail longer. And that leads to some really horrible stuff. Um, my guest is coming. He's going to join us here right now. I want you to listen to uh, what he says. His name is Yusuf Fakiri. Uh, this is a, a clip that's coming up. It was filmed at the sixth annual vigil for his brother uh, who died uh, on December 19th, 2022. And he struggled, his brother struggled with schizophrenia. He was in pretrial detention when he was died at the hands of the correctional officers. Uh, he was also waiting tra uh, transfer to a mental health facility when he passed away. Uh, Yusuf was very passionately says uh, he does the vigil for all those who were killed while awaiting trial. Have a listen to the clip here. We're here tonight to remember other Ontarians and other Canadians who had the same fate as my late brother and we call the fatal nexus between incarceration and mental illness. That is to say, given to their families and body bags rather than be treated with respect and dignity. And so tonight, we're not just here for Suleiman Fakhiri, but for the for the Justin saint for the Cascades, for the Ashley Smith. Canadians that continue to be treated horribly who suffer from mental illness within the justice system. And so that's what tonight's about. I'm going to be joined here, Yusuf Fakiri. He has a pro, uh, uh, an advocacy group called Justice for Soli. Um, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show, Yusuf. Great to be here, Yona. Thank you for having me, sir. It's my pleasure. First of all, my heart goes out to you and your family uh, for uh, related to the loss of your brother and uh, hoping that he's resting in peace. But uh, we feel for you for sure. Um, tell us the story. What happened to him? Yeah, Yona, uh, it's a very tragic story, and it's a story that um, all Canadians uh, should be alarmed. It's a story of a man who suffered from mental illness, uh, someone who, like you said, uh, Yona, in your uh, beginning of your clip, who was legally innocent. Uh, he was there at the Central East Correctional Centre in Lindsay, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes east of Toronto, suffering from mental illness. A few days before his murder, sir, I made arrangements for him to be transferred to a hospital. The reason he wasn't transferred to the hospital was because he was waiting for a bet. He was only there at this location for 11 days. Um, and essentially what happened on December 15th, 2016, uh, he was beaten to death uh, by more than a dozen correctional officers. At the time of his death, both his legs and his hands were tied. He was pepper sprayed oh. twice. There was 50 bruises on his body. And according to the chief pathologist of the Ontario government, Suleiman's death um, was related directly to the actions of the guards. Uh, every fact that I just articulated to you, sir, is not my opinion. It is uh, coming out of uh, the coroner's report. This is Suleiman's uh, final end into his life, sir. Yeah, I, um, I, I hear you, and there's no doubt in my mind that you're sharing uh, reality. We, I remember the story going back years ago, frankly. Um, let me ask you something. Anybody brought to trial, like any of these police officers or, 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 uh, or guards, anybody, anyone sort of, uh, sort of called up on this? No, this is the tragic part, Yona, is that there seems to be, uh, law enforcement seems to believe that there's a double standard. They believe, one, that there's a standard for themselves and then as for us, for the rest of us Canadians. Most of the guards that were involved in the beating death of Suleiman Fakidi uh, are still employees of the Ontario government. There was three criminal police investigations. In the most recent cr criminal police investigation, even though they spoke to an eyewitness whom they called credible, said that there was no sufficient evidence to press criminal charges against the guards at the Sully's murder. So they're still uh, involved in the correctional system, Yona. Wow. That's just got. That's got to keep you up more at night than really anything else as part of this process, right? And 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 thankfully, you know, you're really someone at their best in terms of you know going out there and fighting a good fight uh, in your brother's memory. And I'm sure he's uh, smiling down on you and giving you all the strength you need to keep going. Um, 
let me ask you something. When you your brother passed, you created something called Justice for Soli. Uh, it's a movement. It's an you know I guess an advocacy group. Um, what kind of led you to that, and what's your hope of of keeping that alive? Yeah, you know, look. At the end of the day, I, when I give my talks, and I, and I will say the same thing this evening. Um, I created that movement not just in the honor of my late brother, but to use his legacy to be able to make a difference in the lives of other Canadians that had the same fate as him. You know, uh, I call this this fatal nexus of mental illness and incarceration within the justice system. Our organization is made to serve other Canadians and to be able to assist others that cannot fight for themselves, Jonah, because we have a fundamental problem when it comes to Canadians that are suffering from mental illness in the incarceration system. So we're advocating not for just for the memory of my late brother, but there's other Suleimans that are around us, Jonah, that are still alive who can be saved. And that's what we're doing. And because, frankly, our system needs to be transformed. And it's because if the system does not be transformed, there will be more Suleimans and the more Ashley Smith that will be given to their families and body bags. This is a this is a national issue, on, Yona, that we need to all have a stake in, because if we don't fix this today, then it will become a fundamental problem in the future, sir. Absolutely. And how avoidable was the death of your brother? And um, and how did it impact your family so far? Like, like obviously, that, that had to be very difficult for everybody to deal with. You know, Yona, I visit my late brother every Friday. I go to his grave. Um, I have family members that don't uh, that can't go to his grave. Um, you know, more than six years since his murder, we still continue to suffer. I myself suffer. For, I've suffered a lot over the years. You know, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of pain, depression, you know, all of this over the years. But, but we take solace in the fact that, you know, uh, our efforts and the sacrifice that we're making is that maybe someone else's life will be saved. But the system operates in a way where it, it operates in a very callous way, you know, and that's Suleiman, just like many other ones, are just seen as like a number, as an inmate that they call it. And so we have to remember that these are human beings. These are fathers. These are brothers. These are sisters, mothers yeah. that need to have a better fate, Yona. And, but we fight. We try to fight the good fight in a respectful and noble way, even if it's painful, sir. In Ontario, um, according to a report called Tracking Injustice, uh, it's a law enforcement and criminal justice trans- transparency project. A hundred or forty-one people died in the custody of Ontario correctional institutions in 2021, almost double the number in 2020. Deaths have been largely on the rise since 2015. The project says between 10, 2010 and 2021, more than 280 people have died in custody in jails in Ontario. Listen to what the federal Justice Minister David Lemeny says he was speaking with CPAC on March the 10th. Uh, he's talking about recent bail reform discussions with conservative MPs and suggests that changes to the current bail system could be coming, which could mean more people are going to be locked up pretrial, not less, which would only further burden already strained prison systems and expose individuals to potentially dangerous situations. Have a listen here. There are a number of, of instances in which the, the, the bail system has either failed or made Canadians feel unsafe in their own communities. And so we have to, as Minister of Justice, we also have to address that. Obviously, we're framed by the Charter uh, and Charter principles, but we also have an ongoing duty to, to make changes when those changes are justified. I don't know. I, it, it's hard to listen to that and listen to my guest and uh, not understand that this doesn't make sense. Yusuf Fakiri, he's my guest. He's uh, uh, runs a, a movement called Justice for Soli. His brother died in custody. Yusuf, thank you for being here and thank you for sticking with us. Um, you listen to that clip. It's got to make you want to throw up, right? You know, uh, Yona, I'm I'm a bit uh, shocked and uh, frankly uh, astounded why 
there's this notion that if you just arbitrarily uh, pick up people from the streets and put them in jail that are legally innocent, that's not what's going to make our streets safer. What's going to make our streets safer is better funding for people suffering from mental illness. What's going to make our streets is like more hospital beds for people suffering from certain illnesses and certain uh, drug addictions. It's, it's actually a, it's a Band-Aid solution, Yona, and it's, it's something that's going to cause more harm than good, sir, unfortunately. Yeah, I hear that, brother. I do. And it's it's just so sad because when you're, you know, someone like you who is listening to the story and someone like me who's been in the jails for years, um, we, you and I both know this isn't working, but I just don't know why they're not getting it, man. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Your brother was on his way uh, to being transferred to a mental health facility. Um, he'd still be with us today had that happened, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, Jonas Suleiman, three days before Suleiman's murder, I made arrangements for him to be transferred to a hospital, to a mental health facility. Uh, the judge, through their defense, uh, made that arrangement. But uh, the reason he didn't make it to that uh, facility was there, was there was not enough beds. And we know why there isn't enough beds, Yona, in that we need more funding for these institutions that have the yeah. tools to take care of people with mental illness. Yeah. It's, you yeah. know, this is the problem at the end of the day, Yona, uh, and that's, we need to fix that, That's the root of these issues. Yeah, I was going to say, Yusuf, that, you know, it's, it's a, you know, unfortunately, it, it, it has to come on the back of your brother's death. Uh, but obviously, it's an opportunity for you now to have a, a light shining where it needs to shine, because it's a much bigger problem than incarceration versus non-incarceration, wait, waiting trial, not waiting trial. You know, mental health patients, mental health people are being warehoused, whether they're being warehoused in shelters or hospitals. Like, yeah, what? so give me an idea of the movement that you've got in, in your brother's memory and his, in his, as his legacy. Where do you hope that takes us? Absolutely. So, Yona, we have a bunch of families that uh, there's even families in BC that we're working with and other families across Canada that have lost their loved ones. We're going to be launching the family coalition uh, and lobbying uh, both the provincial government, the federal government and the provincial government to be able to, you know, create a better mechanism for people with mental illness. And we need to make sure that this comes right at the forefront at the policy level for our politicians because and this needs to become an election issue. Right. And we need to make sure that there's there is appropriate mechanism because right now, uh, Yona, what a lot of Canadians uh, don't know is that a lot of the provincial jails, we talk about the federal jails, but a lot of the provincial jails, they don't have uh, an institution that oversees them uh, outside of them. They're, they're, so the correctional system in Ontario government, there's no external system that oversees corrections that could people, like the ombudsman does a certain level of work, but they don't have legislative powers, power. So what we need to do is we need to have these institutions to be oversight, to be held accountable, Yona, because if we don't have these kinds of systems in place, you're going to have more of these deaths. And what we're doing with these families is that we're going to be talking to our politicians in all levels of government to be able to make these differences. And at the end of the day, Soleiman's tragedy is a tragedy that we need to make sure that people know look this is what this this is what can happen when you don't have the appropriate mechanism and we don't have accountability and transparency Yona, in these systems which all, all often do not happen you have tragedies such as this taking place and my brother's story is not the only story you there's hundreds yeah. of canadians that suffered the way yeah. he did sir if you're just joining us right now, I'm talking to Yusuf Fakiri. His brother passed uh, in jail a number of years ago while waiting trial, uh, suffering from severe mental issues and uh, just didn't get the kind of support and help that he needed. Uh, Yusuf, you tweeted that 196 people in pretrial detention have been killed and you remind people that they were technically innocent. Elaborate for that. Elaborate for us on that a little bit, please. Absolutely, Yona. We, we actually wrote, uh, we worked with Tracking and Justice. We wrote a letter to the correct, to the Ontario Solicitor General. We had 30,000 signatures. He, to this day, he didn't wow. respond to our letter. We worked with the wow. Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, Yona, respond specifically saying that stat that I tweeted, uh, but no response, Yona. No response at all. 
And so think about it. There's 198 people, Yona, that were never convicted, found guilty of anything. They lost their lives, Yona. Some of them were in immigration detention. Some were suffering mental illness. Some were basically transited in the system. They were on remand. They all lost their lives, Yona. And the problem that makes this even more difficult is that a lot of the times these data that are within these systems, Yona, it's very hard to get the data out. Tracking and justice did an incredible job on their own to get data out. All too often, you don't, jails don't even say how people die. They just say the cause of death is unknown. That's a preposterous uh, that, statement. Uh, so that's right. That's where I'm going to go here, brother. So you know, your brother was beaten, sprayed, and all that, but you know, by horribly um, uh, abused by the guards, uh, according to the story and according to what you're sharing. Um, that these 198 people, they died similar deaths at the hands of guards, or were there various? Uh, yeah, I hate to talk about what kills people, but I think it's important. Um, did they yeah, well, did they die at the hands the of guards, or kind of how did so that go? That's the yeah, that's the problem, Yona. So the 198, we don't know how they died, Yona. A lot of the 198, what's stated is that their deaths are unknown, Yona. Some of them might have, you know, tragically uh, might have been suicide, Yona. There might have been medical stuff. But we don't know, Yona. The problem in itself is these 198 people died. They died at, what, at, the, at the custody of the state, Yona. The state has, when the state is taking care of the citizens of, of these individuals, the state has a duty to take care of these individuals. They died when they were being taken care of the state. But the fact is, Yona, we don't know how these 198 died. That in itself is a problem. A lot of the time, if you look yeah. at the tracking and justice report, it said that deaths are unknown. This is a problem, sir. I don't know how something can be unknown. You know, we have coroner reports and all that kind of stuff. So somebody's clearly hiding something. Where is this going in the future for your organization? And where do you think it's going for us as Canadians? Well, Yona, for my organization, uh, what we're going to do, we're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep lobbying government to basically create oversight on these correctional systems. Uh, and we need to do this. And we need to make this an election issue. We're going to keep going, Yona, until the end. Because we have, we have leaders, we have different leaders that are championing this, you know, uh, Senator Kim Pate, Peter Beam, and different levels of government, they are. But we have to do a lot more work. I think that's what our movement's going to do. But as Canadians, you know, having, uh, you know, with putting people arbitrarily, you know, in jail without uh, the proper mechanism is a problem. And I think if we continue these issues, I make no mistake, these numbers will continue to double and triple over the years. Because these people, they need help, sir. They shouldn't be given their family vans to their families and body bags. These are individuals that need to be supported. A lot of the people that we often see on the streets, sir, and that they're taken into custody in jails, they suffer from some kind of form of illness. You put them in jail to make the issue, that's a bandied issue. And if we don't do this, this is going to become uh, a much more significant issue down the years, sir. And that's why the, the time is now and right for us to make a change into the system, sir, in a transformative way. I'm talking to Yusuf Fakiri. He uh, has a movement called Justice for Soli. Uh, you should uh, check up on uh, what's going on there. Help if you can. Um, Yusuf, thanks for being here with us. We'd like to continue uh, to chat with you into the future to see uh, how we're making uh, our way to something better, I'm hoping. Yusuf Fakiri, one of the people at their best in the uh, memory and the legacy of his brother. Okay, let me ask you something. Are you happy? I mean, really, are you happy? Let me know. 877-399-9898. If you're not happy, I want to know that too. Because if you live in Canada, apparently we're the 13th happiest country in the world. Even after more than 80 years, we had the darkest year ever, right? And we're the 13th happiest country in the world. So that's pretty cool. That's according to the World Happiness Report. 
And that was released uh, Monday at the International Day of Happiness. Canadians are, as a group, out of 137 countries, number 13. Not bad, right? The report's part of a UN, United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And it's largely based on data gathered from uh, world polls. And 1,000 people per country are surveyed. And this is the sixth year in a row, by the way, that Finland is the happiest country. I, You know, it's not on my bucket list, but maybe that's a place to go. I'm trying to figure out why people are so happy in Finland. Anyway, we'll figure it out. Covering the past three years of happiness levels, though, this year's report gives a glimpse into the feelings during the pandemic from 2020 to 2022, a time where lockdowns were prevalent. And, and I would say people probably weren't the happiest they've ever been, probably not uh, feeling, you know, the greatest because of, you know, being locked down and being, you know, secluded and not being able to see their friends and so on and so on and so on. Correct. So anyway, um, despite overlapping crises, however, uh, most countries remained remarkably resilient, frankly. So according to this report, Canada moving up two places from uh, where it was in the last report, uh, lowest um, from its lowest ranking um, from the year before, right? So even during these difficult years, positive emotions have remained twice as prevalent as negative ones, right? People are finding some light in the dark place and feelings of positive su social support twice as strong as those of loneliness. That was uh, spoken by John uh, Hallowell. He's one of the authors of the report. But besides giving the be besides giving the happiness uh, happiest countries uh, bragging rights, the report shows that the factors that tend to make for a happier population um, are they don't include things like free tin bits and cheaper tickets to events. But here's it, it does include like things of cost of groceries, uh, employment, uh, financial things, and so on. It's definitely a, a real thing, right? So uh, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But um, the gap between the happiness, the happiest, excuse me, and unhappiest Canada uh, Canadians put us in the 31st spot among 137 countries uh, before. Uh, so uh, we're counting for 2.8 points. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it, there's, a, there's a, a spread between the happiness and the least happy. Uh, in Afghanistan, the country with the lowest happiness gap the number is 1.6. So Canada is um, doing it. We have, uh, I think, um, 2.8 points versus 1.6 points um, on the survey. Uh, other countries, by the way, uh, that remain that, you know, Finland, as we said, remain the happiest country in the world for the sixth year at 7.8. Uh, Denmark, 7.6. Iceland, 7.5. Israel, 7.5. Um Take the fourth spot, Netherlands, 7.4, uh, Sweden, 7.4, Norway, 7.3. So Lithuania, 6.7, made its way to the 20th, uh, top 20. Um, and on the other end of the scale, Afghanistan, 1.8, Lebanon, 2.3, remain the two unhappiest countries in the world. And um, yeah, it could, I guess maybe you could see that based on what's going on in those countries. I'm really not sure. I'd love to hear from you if you have some thoughts, 877 Nine eight nine eight. Are you happy? Do we you feel like you live in one of the happiest places in the world? You know, I'd like to know what you think, and uh, you can give us a call here. I got to tell you, happiness is um, happiness is is something that is uh, somewhat uh, subjective, right? Like, what does happy mean to you? So, happy means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Sometimes happy means, you know, you have more money or you're able to take vacation or, you know, your kids are doing well or your family's healthy 
or you know you're enjoying your job or you're in a good relationship or you want to be in a good relationship and you're happy that you have the opportunity to find yourself there happiness is a very difficult scale um, when looking at it in a non-survey type environment right um happy i'm happy for different reasons than maybe you're happy things that make me happy for example i love water I find that water is uh, very soothing for me. It keeps me in a very good place. Uh, it makes me feel like, uh, I don't know, like life can go on forever if you look at the endlessness of water. So, and I, you know, you're listening to me. And I can see that you're shaking your head going, yeah, me too. I like water too. Oh, cool. So we're on the same page, right? I love the fact that if you stare out at a body of water that's infinite, in other words, you can't necessarily see where the water ends. For me, that gives me great comfort in the openness, the 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 everness of it, the for the forever kind of feeling. The um, it doesn't have a lot of boundaries. Doesn't have a lot of uh, you know nothing boxing it in. Uh, it it makes my it from my eye from the perspective of my eyes from what I see. Uh, it gives me a, a tremendous amount of comfort if I get close enough to the water and I can hear it. I love the sounds. It's part of my my meditation program. Has uh, water sounds, crashing uh, water sounds, uh, water over rocks. Uh, water coming through falls. So water for me is my kind of my happy place when I can find it and get to it. Uh, I live in a kind of a concrete jungle. I stare out my out my uh, condo uh, window and I live in a lovely neighborhood, but it's all concrete trees and rooftops, right? Uh, not terrible, but gosh, I'd love to be by the water. Thinking about doing that someday. I'd like to know, you know, what makes other people happy is very important to me too. And when I meet patients for the first time or even clients for my, for my uh, coaching practice, I'll say, okay, so what makes you happy? You know, how do we know that uh, what we're doing together is working and how do we know that you're it's successful based on your desire to be happy? And interestingly enough, when I meet a, a patient for the first time and do, a, uh, do an assessment uh, interview, I say like this, I'm going to give you three wishes. Don't ask for a car. Don't ask for a lot of money. Nothing material like that, but give me three wishes. So generally it'll be something like I want to be sober. I want to be back in a health, in a good relationship. I want a better job. I want my mother to like me again. I want people to be proud of me. I got to tell you, seven out of 10 people that I talk to, happiness isn't even on their radar. How's that? You're looking at me and you're just shaking your head. I can see you're shaking your head. Yeah, you can understand. But, you know, people, I guess, take the question for granted, maybe. You know, I, 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 for sure, I, I assume that you just think, I, you know, there's no such thing as assuming that someone wants to be happy. Either you want to be happy or you don't. It's either part of your, your, your wish list or it's not. And if it's not, why not? And I'll tell you why not, now that you're asking the question. Thank you. The reason is because a lot of people don't understand how to achieve levels of happiness that um, are worth really talking about, frankly. You know, that, you know, well, you know, I don't think this is ever going to happen. I'm never going to find the right relationship or I'm never going to find my dream job or I, I can't see myself ever, you know, taking one of those fancy vacations. Um, so it's kind of like, like a give up. It's like a give up, if you know what I'm saying. People just kind of give up on the fact that they could, in fact, you know, they could be happy. And why not? It's not, by the way, money doesn't necessarily buy happiness. I'll tell you, I got a lot of people in my practice that have um, come from a fair amount of wealth, especially in my youth practice. 
families that pay for treatment for their kids for, you know, uh, it's not inexpensive. It costs significant amounts of money. They have usually come from lots of money. Uh, so to speak, certainly from my perspective, lots of money and they're miserable. A lot of the, a lot of these people in these families, not all of them are thrilled and happy. And, and people that I know that, you know, one day wanted to make all kinds of money and now are making all kinds of money and thought that that would give them the happiness that they need. It ain't so. It just isn't happening like that. They just don't feel that 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 happiness that you know you know that kind of twinkle your you know I, I kind of refer to happiness like kind of twinkling you know twiggling your toes or making your toes move up and down and and at the same time you know big grin on your face and kind of it, it, that's what happiness sort of feels like and, and sort of means to me is that kind of you know your, your toes are dancing so to speak you're you're in a good place lots of people don't see themselves there they just can't understand how to get there which by itself is is quite sad. So I'm here to tell you that you can, in fact, achieve happiness. You need to figure out what it is that makes you happy and go for it. Come up with a game plan like anything else, like getting on from the bottom of a mountain to the top of a mountain. You do the same thing. You plot a trail. So plot your trail to happiness. You'll get there, I promise. And if you don't know how to get there, give me a call, 877-777-5808. Anytime through the weekend, I'll help you figure out how to find your happy place. 13th happiness, happiest country in the world, though. That's where we live right here, right now. How do you get happy? How do you make it a great day? These things are don't they don't just kind of happen. They don't just come to you. You have to work at it. You actually have to put in the effort to make your day great. And that takes time. It takes some work. It takes a strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about here right now. We're going to talk about that strategy on how to make it a great day. You know, when people, you know, you're in a store somewhere and someone says, have a good day. Or, you know, you walk out of the someone's office and they say, okay, you better have a good day. And you think to yourself, yeah, I'd love to have a good day. Is this, are they giving that to me? Are they handing me something? I know you're looking at me going, is he out of his mind? No, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit out of my mind. But what I'm talking about is things don't just happen. You don't just necessarily become happy. You have to work at happiness. Same way, you have to make it a great day. It can be an okay day. It can be an average day. I mean, that'll make just may just happen in the course of you living your life, perhaps. If depending on the kind of life you lead, it has an awful lot to do with it as well, right? But there's there's work. It takes it takes a little bit of effort. And here's some steps that you can take to make it a great day. You know, you have to start your day off on the right foot. Got to take care of yourself physically, mentally, make sure you get enough sleep, right? Wake up feeling well rested, take some breaths, stretch, stretch your, uh, your body a little bit before you get started. I have friends that tell me that they have a big glass of water with uh, lemon uh, in, the, in the morning. First thing, it does something for them, gets their uh, metabolism moving, gets everything moving, you know, stretching a little bit, getting your body up and, and active. These are all things that we do to start the day off properly. And if we're rushing and rushing and rushing to get the kids out and to get your stuff ready and the lunch is made and your clothes for the next day and all that, get it all put together and, and, you're, and you're not organized and you're not doing it in some kind of organized, pat, you know, paced kind of way, chances of having a great day aren't going to be good for you. Because I'll tell you, you need to actually set it up in such a way that you have a routine that properly sets you up for making it a great day. Taking time not being in a hurry, making sure you've got enough room, making sure you have some forethought in terms of the things you need to do the day, you know, from the day before for the next day. So it doesn't just suddenly hit you, right? You want to just make sure that you work at 
setting yourself up to make it a great day. So stay, start your day off positive in a positive with a positive attitude. Make a plan for the day and prioritize your tasks. Spend time with people who you care about. These are the first three that we did over the last week or so. Now we're going to talk about the next several keys, uh, key points that you can um, uh, put into your routine to help you make it a great day. Take a break. Do something you enjoy throughout the day. You know, if you're working a job that you can get outside for a little bit, you know, again, stretch your legs a little bit more, get some sunshine, get some air. You know, even if it's a cold and, and wintry, you can still enjoy the outside if you're dressed appropriately. Get outside. Do something you enjoy. You know, maybe uh, have, a, have a snack or uh, feed the birds or something that you might enjoy. Get some exercise. Make sure you get time to clear your mind through physical exercise. It's very important. Exercise is an important part of making it a great day. Sleep, nutrition, exercise for everyone that's out there. If you want to make your day great, you got to make sure you got the right amount of fuel so you're eating properly, the right amount of exercise so you're getting your body moving, keeping your, you know, the, your organs moving and pumping and doing all the good things they need to do, clearing your mind. So by distracting your your perhaps busy day or you know day full of of challenges, you know clear your mind by doing something different to distract your thinking also helps you make it a great day. Staying hydrated, making sure you've got fluids. People talk about they don't understand why. Oh, I know she drinks like three bottles of water a day. Well, I know people that drink a bottle an hour, and they're very healthy. And I know people that don't drink much water or much much of any kind of fluid, and they're not so healthy. So. It's part, the part of making it a great day has to do with A, how it starts, B, how you get your tasks and, uh, and, and functions and requirements organized throughout the day, making sure you're spending time with people that are important to you, that you care about, that you want to be with, that are positive, that give you positive feedback. You want to make sure you take the time out through the day to enjoy good things, to enjoy things that make you smile. You want to make sure that you have time to have some form of exercise. Like we keep going on. You, you must be so tired of hearing me say exercise and you think that you're listening to a fitness show, but you're not. Good mental health has everything to do with good physical health and vice versa. Very important that if you want a good frame of mind, your body has to be intact. If you want your body to be intact, you have a good, have to good frame of mind. They go hand in hand like peanut butter and jam. You got to have it all together. You got to make sure you take time throughout your busy day to reflect on the things in your life that you have and you enjoy. There has to be levels of appreciation for what you do have and thoughts about, you know, being, you know, somewhat grateful. There's something called a gratitude, a gratitude uh, um, a chart that you can make, you know, things that you're, that you're happy about, things that make you, that make you feel good, that you're grateful for. These are all the things that make it a great day. It's not about winning the lottery. It's not about, you know, having that the most amazing sandwich you've ever had in your life from the, your local whatever. Making it a great day starts between your shoulders and the top of your head. It starts with attitude. If you got a positive attitude, very good likelihood you're going to have a positive day. If you have a negative attitude, very likely that you're going to have a negative day. So how do you make it a great day? By having a great attitude. And you know, an average day, average attitude. It, it starts with how you think. And if you want to be miserable, think miserable. If you think like you're miserable, you're going to be miserable. If you think like it's going to be a great day, it's going to be a great day. You can will it. You can make it happen. But you have to set yourself up for it. Number one, you have to feel that you deserve it. Do I deserve to make it a great day? Do I deserve to have a great day? The answer, if you're asking me, my friend, is absolutely you do.
Eat, you, look at me. You're looking at me. I know you are. I can see you too. Of course, every one of us deserves to have a great day. And if we're not having a great day because someone cut us off on the highway or we took a bag of groceries out of the grocery store and the bag broke and all everything was all over the floor or you know, spilled coffee on myself in the car on the way to work. I mean, these are all things that have obviously happened to me, which is why I'm sharing them with you right here, right now. So making a great day has everything to do with how you feel about your day and about who you are and where you are in this world. And when things happen, like spilling a cup of coffee, hopefully nobody gets hurt, you kind of got to laugh it off as just one of those things. But a spilt cup of coffee or someone cutting you off on the highway or a bag breaking coming out of the grocery store shouldn't be enough to make your day anything but great. Because if you can laugh at it, shrug it off, make yourself feel better by saying, ah, you know, it happens, not the end of the world, then you end up with a great day. If you harbor those horrible thoughts throughout the day of the idiot that cut you off or the coffee that you spilt, the whole day is going to be miserable. So making it a great day has everything to do with how you approach it, how you feel about you and how you feel about you in that day. Has a lot to do with how you feel about other people too. You know, if you don't have, an ad if you don't have any uh, room in your heart for people that aren't exactly like you, it's going to be hard to make it a great day. So these are a few tips that help you get to where you need to get to. And I'm wishing that each and every one of you has a great day every day. And there's ways to do that. A former Mountie turned BC Liberal member of the Legislative Assembly is calling for more mental health supports after kicking a knife away from a man in crisis outside a White Rock Cafe on Tuesday. Eleanor Sturko, who is, represents Surrey South, was sitting at a coffee shop. We're going to hear her tell us that story in just a minute. But have a listen to what she says about what happened when she approached the man with the knife. I was saying, hey, take it easy. You don't need to have a knife. You know, nobody is here to hurt you. And, like trying to de-escalate him, but he was past de-escalation, yeah. right? Eleanor Sturko, my guest this evening. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate can I it. say on it? Can I say on the air? You are kick-ass. Okay? <laughs> kick-ass. You are certain you are now one of my superheroes. I'm gonna oh, get a t-shirt with I'm gonna get a t-shirt made with your picture on it. And um, oh, really, really proud of uh Jackets, they're more expensive than the t-shirt though, but maybe. Um, last but longer the though, deal. last longer. <laughs> there you go. Eleanor, um, crazy story, like, you know, really um, an, a remarkable story. But what I really love about this whole thing is how you've, you know, taken this whole situation. People don't really understand uh, who you are, and maybe that, that's what you need to kind of share with them here for a minute. You're a member of the Legislative Assembly in BC as a liberal, but you're also involved with the mental health. You're, you're also the mental health and addiction and recovery critic, which is kind of right in my wheelhouse, right? So um, glad that you could be here with us tonight. Before joining the BC Legislative Assembly, you were a cop. Um, talk, you want to talk a little bit about that? For sure. Yeah. I actually just resigned my position um, right like the same day that I sorry, my retirement was the same day I was sworn into the BC legislature. I'd gone on a, a leave of absence from my job as a sergeant at Surrey RCMP here in the lower mainland. And then um, after the election was done, I resigned and started right away as MLA for Surrey South. So it was a quick transition and working in the constituency. Actually, there's sometimes a lot in common, it seems, with um, policing. You know, you're helping people with problems and trying to guide them to the right resources that they need, and I really enjoy it. 
You know, that's uh, if you're a cop being a good cop, that's exactly what you should be doing. And uh, I love the way you share that. It's really about helping people to serve and protect is one of it, of course, but helping is where we're at. And uh, it's not always the case. And we share stories, obviously, around around that kind of stuff. Um, quick question, though. Do you miss you miss like the uniform? Were you in a uniform or are you plain clothes? No, I was uniformed. Do I miss it? I miss yeah. it in the way that I never had to wonder what I was going to wear to work. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so that I miss that. And, you know, there's always something, a sense of pride in being a part of a team, especially Mm -hmm. when we would wear a red surge. And um, I was part of also the musical ride um, for a year. And so I got to represent Canada on horseback. And so so that those are some really good memories. But I really enjoy my work as an MLA. And I like being able to take the things that I actually learned on the street, dealing with people in crisis, dealing with mental health and addictions issues, and then converting that hopefully into positive change in legislation here to help people in British Columbia. Talking to Eleanor Sturko, she's a liberal uh, member of the Legislative Assembly and responsible for mental health, addiction, and recovery. Um, Take us through the event uh, that happened outside the cafe in Right Rock where you uh, were just a superstar. Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know if I was a superstar, but I was having coffee with a friend. And, um, you know, it's a very popular cafe, amazing pastries there. Really, actually quite popular local hangout in White Rock at the Five Corners. And um, so sitting outside on a lovely day and an individual just came up and started um, yelling and, and was obviously in some kind of mental health distress. The person that I was with actually is um, was a nurse, a, a critical care nurse, and she's also herself dealt with a lot of people in mental health yeah. crisis. And we actually said to each other, like, well, he obviously has some kind of mental health issue going on. Um, and it was fine. Like, I mean, you do see it occasionally, people yelling or, or being upset or escalated. And so it wasn't incredibly, you know, unusual, to be honest, until um, he pulled out a hunting knife. And uh, was quite agitated. So as soon as I saw the knife, actually, I, I stood up. I was thinking in my mind, I was like, oh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> and he was talking on the phone with one of his hands, and then he had the hunting knife in the other hand. And he actually fumbled it, and so it fell to the ground. Um, and so I was walking towards him while the knife was actually on the ground. I don't advise trying to, like, disarm people with knives. <laughs> this is not what I'm advocating for, but... In the moment, I just made a decision that is it a greater risk to try to to kick it away or is it a greater risk to let him pick it up again? And I didn't want him to get it again. I thought that would be much more dangerous. And so while talking to him and making eye contact with him, I just walked towards him and then pounced on the knife and booted it away and, and someone else was able to secure it. So. It was great. And my friend had simultaneously called 911 and actually the man's mother arrived on scene just before police as well. She actually said she was glad the police were coming because she struggles to get help for her son, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's, yeah. that's awful. I, that's actually a heartbreaking thing to me. And it's not the first time I've experienced this or seen this where people are relieved that the police are coming and that there's this crisis because it's, they feel it's their only way to get access to help for their adult child. Yeah, I hear that. You know, you say, you know, you don't recommend that people kick the knife out of somebody or take the knife away, but it's kind of like the commercial that says, don't try this at home. These people are professionals. Um, You you were, you know, you you obviously had instincts 
Uh, is that what drove your, you think that's what drove your initial reaction, perhaps if you were perhaps a school teacher or worked in a, in a store or a lawyer or something, you think you might've had that same instinct to rack the way you did? I, do, I mean, I have to say that definitely it's because of my police training and I have dealt with people in, you know, mental health crisis. I've dealt with armed people before I've dealt with people brandishing weapons um, but not in my civilian life <laughs> so far until Tuesday. But um, I, I wasn't feeling fear so much as recognizing that there was a threat. And I think that is because of my training. So I wasn't afraid. And then I guess afterwards on reflection, seeing how afraid other people were and how shaken some of the people that were there had been, then I was like, oh, yeah, that was kind of a dangerous situation. <laughs> and it's not that I didn't see the risk in it, but I'm, used to i guess when it's hard to explain but i think part of it's like being a firefighter jumping towards the fire right yeah i think that you you've kind of trained yourself to be calm and just to make risk assessments and you sort of focus on what you have to do and so in that moment i was just making eye contact with the person talking to them watching their body language i can tell you that if the person had bent down to pick up the knife again before i had gotten to it i wouldn't have gotten close um but they didn't. And by talking to the person and maintaining eye contact and I had my hands up, I kept their attention and so that I was able to get my foot on the knife before they looked down at it again. So it worked out. Um, I had to make sure and explain that to my spouse (laughs) that the knife was on the ground. I didn't do anything crazy, (laughs) but, and you know, at the end of the day, like my whole reason even to talk to the media after is because I think we just need to really highlight how this is not, actually that unusual of an occurrence where people have these yeah. mental health crisis and, and family members are basically at their wits end trying to get a resolution, trying to get something for their, for their child. And I think as, as shaken as people at the coffee shop felt, I can only imagine that the person who actually was having a mental health breakdown, right. a crisis, how Felt frightened worse. they must have been to feel yeah. like they have to arm themselves with a hunting knife in, in White Rock. So, you know, they need our help. Um, That's for sure. It's not great that we have to, you know, we talked about this for a couple of years now. Eleanor Sturko, uh, she's a BC Liberal and member of the Legislative Assembly, and her uh, area of expertise is mental health addiction and a recovery critic uh, in the MLA. She's joining us this evening. Listen to what Eleanor says. Uh, we're talking about the story where she uh, was able to get a knife away from uh, someone not at their best uh, in a coffee shop. Listen to what Eleanor has to share with uh, Global News. In my previous career as a police officer, I've dealt with people with mental health issues and in crisis before. And, you know, based on what I saw, yeah, it was a threatening situation. Eleanor Sturko, how are you? Welcome for staying with us this evening. Thanks. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. So so a question I didn't ask you, but I really want to, how do you go from cop to cop to politician? Did you not have enough bureaucracy while you're you're at the RCMP? (laughs) You know what it is, is that actually my policing career has inspired me because so many things you deal with, a lot of social issues when you're policing, to be honest. Um, And you see ways in which we really could make things better. And I used to always say, you know what, if I was in government, you know what I would do? (laughs) And I would, you know, spout off all my different ideas. And and then I was asked if I would like to try and run for MLA. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to take what I've learned on the street and dealing with people. And, and I will try to make a difference. I will try to improve things. Um, Because 
you know, especially when it comes to mental health um, and addictions, I've seen some real suffering, not only from people that are suffering from mental health and addictions, but their families and loved ones. And I'm, you know, and so I've, I'm very much committed to, to making a difference. I've only been in uh, the legislature for six months. I've already put forward a private member's bill to amend yeah. our BC Mental Health Act. And I'm doing everything that I can. And, and really, it, it's based on inspiration from just working with everyday people who were in crisis and had problems and, and seeing ways and hearing suggestions for ways we could make it better. Amazing. How did you know when you were looking at this individual, this guy, um, what, how did you know that they were in a mental health crisis as opposed to just a violent criminal? Well, you could tell mostly because of the things that he was saying didn't make sense. You know, he was shouting loudly. He was saying, everybody's looking at me. He was calling for his mom on the phone, which I think he must have been possibly on the phone with her because she did show up. But, you know, was he was not acting... Um, he was acting in a way that suggested that he was suffering from a mental health crisis, not addicted to drugs, not intoxicated by alcohol or drugs. Um, and so, and his appearance too, he, he was not a person that appeared to be living rough. He, but he, his actions, and we received training um, at depot mm-hmm. and then throughout our policing careers in the RCMP to recognize signs of mental health um, disorders and, and crisis. And so, you know, Partly, I think it would have been obvious to anyone that there was something going on, potentially like a health crisis or a mental breakdown. Um, and also I've received training in my policing career as well. So he, so I, I, I'm trying to understand the scenario. If you can kind of take us, take me through the kind of. So you walk in, or you're there. Suddenly, this this guy becomes agitated, I guess, and then a knife well, so appears. Was he doing? Well, was he sitting targeting outside. anybody with the knife? No, I. I well, the thing was, is that we were sitting outside, actually. So he just walked uh, okay. upon us. So outside of Laura's, if you've never been there, it's nope. a beautiful little spot on the corner of um, a great little neighborhood with some shops and everything. And so people are always, you know, walking by. It's a very busy and bustling little spot. So you can sit outside. It happened to be a really nice day. And this individual, I never saw him approaching. I heard him first, then saw him. He actually was... Uh, yelling in the direction of a table beside me. And at first I thought they might know him, um, but they didn't. I asked them like, you know, and then when I recognized, <clears throat> excuse me, that he was having um, a mental health issue, I actually said to them, oh, I think there's something going on. I think he is having a mental health issue. And um, so when we we're sitting there, like within probably a minute or, or so, that's the person continued to yell onto the phone to their mother and, um, then they just suddenly, like without warning, and you don't know um, what's going to happen. They, he said he had a knife and he just pulled it out of his clothing like it was concealed, pulled it out, and um, yeah, was brandishing it in the direction of everybody that was sitting outside. So it wasn't like targeting any one particular person, but just waving it um, in a general direction towards all of us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's never a good thing when, when someone who's clearly agitated yeah. um, and, and, you know, they're having a problem, obviously they must feel threatened in some way. And, and then, of course, he, a knife, a large knife emerged from his clothing. So, um, you know, right then I was sort of like, oh, okay, um, that's not good. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and luckily, so thankfully the person did fumble it. They dropped it, which is when I went and stepped on it and, and then kicked it away. The, um, the police came very fast, too, and you know what? 
I think it's good that he dropped it and that we got it away because it also lessened the risk for him when the police came. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you think maybe he was brandishing it to get more attention or uh, something in his call for help? Or do you think, you know, there was something, you know, psychotic going on, uh, kind of thinking that people were coming at him? Like you said, maybe he felt threatened? Yeah, I think more. It's hard to know. Like, I don't know what his intent was because I really was the things that he was saying were kind of erratic. You know, he was saying that people were looking at him and, um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe he felt threatened, uh, regardless of what his reason was, um, you know, at the time, having someone who's, you know, not necessarily behaving in a predictable way, pulling out a knife is, is unsettling and creates sure. a dangerous situation. So I'm happy that it worked out the way that it did. And I'm, I'm grateful for the police for coming. And I hope that this individual is going to be able to now get the help that they need. Yeah, unfortunately, it usually takes something like this. You said after the incident, uh, we shouldn't have to wait for a crisis like this for a family to receive help for their adult child. Uh, what does that mean? <clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really, really complicated if you have an individual in your family who um, is suffering from mental health issues and they don't want to uh, go to counseling or to therapy or to take their medication. It can be really challenging particularly when it is an adult, um, there may be even issues um, of communication between healthcare providers and that adult's um, family members who are then the ones that are actually trying to help this person. Many times they um, are either living with the family member or um, they're the ones that are helping care for them maybe in their own apartment, but it's really complicated. And so, you know, I've been to lots of calls where, you know, we end up apprehending someone out of their home and then you find out that families have, you know, had the house trashed. They've had um, family members assaulted, threatened. Yeah. Um, periods of time where their loved one has gone missing, and then they've been absolutely at their wits' end trying to find them. Um, and and the reality is, is that the way that uh, our mental health act and our mental health care system works in some of these situations where people um, are not, you know, stabilized and they're not receiving the health care that they that they need, it ends up coming to a situation where they have to pretty much become a threat to themselves or others um, before, before, they get the help. before they get the help. And, and it really shouldn't be like that. And, you know, we've talked about this. I can remember just a couple of years ago during the pandemic um, when there was a lot of controversy and, and a lot of conversations surrounding police dealing with mental health concerns. And, you know, while I don't think that we will eliminate ever the need to have police intervene in, in, crises, particularly because of the chance of having uh, violent incidents, I think that we need to do more to have different types of supports in the community so it doesn't become the crisis that police need to go to, you know, um, and it's, it's really challenging. So, I mean, for BC Liberals, we have a lot of um, ideas and we've actually put forward a plan called Better as Possible and we want to increase the amount of um, complex mental health support. And I think having more supports particularly that are bed-based or residential, even community-based residential, um, will go a long way to, to making sure that people get the help that they need. I'm joined this evening by Eleanor Sturko. She's a member of the Legislative Assembly in BC, responsible for mental health, addiction, uh, and that kind of stuff. Thank you so much for joining us, Eleanor. And we're going to stick, we're going to connect with you every once in a while to see how you're uh, kicking ass there in, uh, in government. Uh, <laughs> we so got to get those a, jackets. 
There you go. I'll bring one to you. I promise. Uh, Eleanor Sturko, <laughs> Eleanor Sturko uh, certainly one of the people at her best for sure, uh, making a difference in the world. Thanks for being here with us. 